to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 10, as we follow along with today's lesson. So they had the symposium, and... uh, MIT published a book which was the printed form of the symposium, the various lectures and theories and all that were presented. And uh, the very first presentation was by a group of American scientists who entered into a computer all of the factors that were necessary for the creating of the first cell by uh, these accidental circumstances, by matter acting on matter. And uh, as they fed them in to get the compound probability of the first cell ever being formed, the chances of the first cell ever being formed were so vast that this first symposium suggested that it's impossible that there could be any other life form any place else in the universe. The chances of it being developed are too vast, too remote. It's an utter impossibility that there could be other life forms in the universe. I thought that was quite interesting. Carl Sagan actually edited this uh, book called Extraterrestrial uh, Communication. Why didn't they carry that one step further? Having concluded that it's impossible that a cell could form from uh, just uh, spontaneous kind of regeneration, why can't you carry that one step further and say it's impossible that you exist? It's impossible that life could exist anywhere else in the universe. Then how do you explain, explain life existing here? You've got to say, well, it was created, you see. But they can't take that step. You know, that's not scientific. It's just scientific to say it's impossible that it can happen anywhere in the universe other than here. Well, then how did it happen here? Except it be God created. So, how do we get there? I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Darkness. Outer darkness. The galaxies in our universe are constantly emitting light. And of course, now there's an interesting, you know, scientific kind of 
research on whether or not the speed of light is slowing down. With the slowdown of entropy and all, is the speed of light slowing down? And there are many physicists today who concur that it is. And then they talk about the curve of light. And uh, we know that light travels at at, at the present time at 186,000 uh, miles per second. But if it's slowing down, it might be 185,000, another 5 million years or so. So, uh, but uh, it's, it's interesting that it is conceivable that you could go so far out into emptiness beyond the furthest galaxy that you could actually get to a point where no light from our universe would even reach that far. Total darkness. Away completely from light. It could be that that is where God has destined for those who love darkness rather than light. And that eternally they will be in the abyss of darkness, as Jesus said, outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a fitting kind of a penalty for those who don't love light. If you love darkness rather than light, God says, well, all right. We'll put you into outer darkness but they'll discover that that's not so good. Now, the Pharisees took counsel. They realized, hey, this guy is nailing us, but good. We've got to do something. We've got to trip him up somehow. He has strong public appeal. The people think he's a prophet. They're following him. They're entranced by him. We've got to somehow catch him. Catch him in his speech. And so they sent out unto him their disciples. They didn't have the courage to come themselves, but they sent their disciples with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians and the Pharisees were bitter enemies. They were constantly in controversy with each other. The basic kind of conflict lay in the fact that the Pharisees were strong nationalists, hating the Roman government, Believing that they should, at the first opportunity, rebel against Rome. They chafed under the Roman rule. The Herodians were Jews who had found it profitable to be under the Roman rule. And they advocated the cooperating with Rome because they had received positions of power and authority by the Roman government. So there was this bitter controversy between the Herodians and the Pharisees, 
But it's amazing how a common enemy can unite men who are otherwise at odds with each other. They're united now in their opposition of Jesus. And so the two representative groups got together and they had formed a question that they figured would catch him. It was a catch-22. The Pharisees advocated not paying taxes. The Herodians advocated that you should pay taxes. So they came together to Jesus with the idea of settle this controversy between us. And so they came with flattering words. Master, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God in truth. And neither do you care for any man nor regard the person of man. In other words, you are not intimidated by man. You're a square shooter. You're not afraid of man's opinion. You're going to tell what's right, what's true. This kind of acknowledgement of Jesus, of course, was hypocritical. They were trying to set him up for the question. Tell us, therefore, instruct us. What do you think? Is it lawful to give taxes unto Caesar or not? Now, if he says, no, it is not lawful to pay tribute to Caesar, the Herodians will rush right down to the Roman government and say, there's a fellow that's formed an opposition to tax program and he's speaking against Rome and they will accuse him of treason against Roman rule. If he says, yes, it is awful, you ought to pay your taxes, then all of the Jews, they'll turn against him because they all hated paying taxes to Rome. We've caught him. He's in a catch-22. He can't say yes, he can't say no. So Jesus, perceiving their wickedness, he caught on, you know, you tried to trap me, haven't you? He said, why do you tempt me, you hypocrites? You know, you're really not looking for an answer. You're looking for a controversy. You know, there are a lot of questions that people ask that are not honest questions. They really don't want an answer. They want an argument. They want you to express your opinion on an issue, and then they're going to argue with you. So the questions are not honest questions. They're questions that are designed to stir up an argument. This was a question that was designed to stir an argument. They weren't looking for a real answer. They're going to hold to their positions no matter what he says, but they figured that he'll lose half of his support anyhow. But Jesus said, show me your tax money, your tribute money. Now, they had what they called the poll tax, 
It was a Roman denarius, called a penny, but a denarius in the Greek. And the poll tax was a denarius. And so he said, show me your tax money. And so they gave him a denarius, <laughs> much more than a penny. They, they, <laughs> it'd be great if we only had to pay a penny tax. But, uh, <laughs> and he said unto them, whose image and superscription is this? Now, on the denarius, the Roman denarius at the time of Christ, they had a superscription of Caesar, and there is a wreath over his head. On the opposite side of the coin, uh, they have um, Pontimus Maximus, the Maximus or the, the, the ultimate ruler. And so Jesus held it up to them and he said, whose image and superscription is this? Caesar's. Tiberius Caesar, there was the inscription. And they said unto him, it's Caesar's. Then he said unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they marveled, and they left him and went their way. They said, he got out of it, you know. Clever. The same day, there came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. This is under the Mosaic law. And not only is it under the Mosaic law, it precedes the Mosaic law. We find an example of this. It's a cultural thing. Uh, way back in the book of Genesis with Judah and Tamar. The son of Judah married Tamar. He died without having any children. His brother took Tamar. He died without having any children. And you can go back in Genesis and read the story. But... It was incorporated into the Mosaic law. Now, it is still practiced today among the uh, Bedouins and uh, other groups uh, still practice this. If a man takes a wife and he doesn't have any children by her but dies without having any children, his brother takes her and the first son that is born becomes the heir of that which was his uncles, who died without having any children. So the family is sort of kept intact. The family possessions are kept intact that way. And so uh, under the Mosaic law, it was incorporated there. If a man takes a wife, dies without having children, the brother takes a wife, the son is named after the dead brother. He was called the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And he then becomes the heir of the family uh, possessions. Uh, under the law, there was an out. It, it, it was sort of an honorable thing that was supposed to be done. 
Uh, there is another case in the Old Testament concerning Onan, who refused to do it and was slain of the Lord because of his refusal to uh, do this honorable thing. Uh, it uh, was considered the honorable, the right thing to do, but you weren't actually forced to do it. Under the law, if you didn't want to do it, you would come to the elders, the judges, and you'd say, don't want her. <laughs> you know, no way. She gave my brother a bad time, you know. <laughs> I was around. I saw how she reacted. And, uh-uh. And you would take off your sandal and you'd hand it to her. It's like you're a dirty shoe and I'm not interested in you. <laughs> Insulting thing, of course. She in turn would then spit in your face. <laughs> but you would be relieved legally from the obligation of taking her as your wife. And in some cases, probably be better to be spit in the face than... But then, you'll, though you did receive a... a dirty title. You were called the man who loosed his shoe. You failed to do the honorable thing. And, and that was sort of a dirty title, the man who loosed his shoe. Now, these fellows are making up a real Lulu. It's a hypothetical case. But it is intended to be an argument uh, that shows absurdity and thus trying to prove the point by making an absurd kind of a situation. So Moses said, if a man dies and has no children, his brother shall marry his wife and shall raise up seed unto his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers the first, when he had married a wife, died and had no children. And so he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second brother also died without children. And the third, all the way to the seventh. You're wondering why the police didn't examine the coffee she was giving to her husbands. <laughs> Last of all, the woman died. She drank her own coffee. <laughs> Therefore, in the resurrection, which brother gets her? And they could picture a big fist fight. Or they could picture seven guys running. <laughs> there are those who have also, in view of the resurrection of the dead, which the Bible teaches, have seen some real problems with the resurrection of our bodies. For instance, if you have received a heart transplant, which heart will you get? Our body is made up of chemicals. When you die, your body goes back to dust. 
Dust thou art, to dust thou shalt return. It, it decomposes back into chemicals in the soil. And in the days of the West, when they buried them on the prairies, just dug a grave, no coffins, no concrete vaults, but just buried their bodies on the plains. And the bodies decomposed into the dust, chemicals. And the prairie grass, went, the roots went down and picked up those chemicals that were once a part of your body, drew them up to nourish this prairie grass. The cows came and ate the prairie grass and the chemicals from your decomposed body went into the cow and became a part of the cow's milk, which was drunk by another man who theoretically had some of your chemicals from your decomposed body now making up his body. And then they go on with these absurd kind of thoughts and concepts by which they try to make the resurrection from the dead look to be an impossible absurdity. Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err on two counts. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. In not believing in the resurrection, they did not know the scriptures. The scriptures definitely teach the resurrection. In not believing the resurrection, they didn't know the power of God. God can do anything. And of course, to clear up the, if you're worried about you know, you might be a part of someone else who's decomposed in the past and the chemicals in your body may have made up chemicals in someone else's body in the past. And chances are, and very likely, it, it is so. But if you're wondering about it in the resurrection, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said, now concerning the resurrection of the dead, he sort of points to nature for an illustration, he said, when you plant a seed into the ground, the seed does not come forth into a new body until it first of all dies. And he said that the body then that comes out of the ground is not the body that you planted because all you planted was a bare seed by chance wheat or some other seed. But God gives it a body that pleases him. So we will have a resurrection body. That is, a new body. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 said that uh, we know that when this earthly tent, our body, is dissolved... We have a building of God that's not made with hands, that's eternal in the heavens. So then we who are in these bodies do often groan, earnestly desiring to be delivered, not that we would become unembodied spirits, but we want to be clothed upon with the body which is from heaven. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in a resurrection body. I personally don't believe that this body is going to be resurrected. I hope not. 
I'm hoping for curly hair. <laughs> you see, if, if God was going to resurrect this body, then I wish I would have died when I was 25. <laughs> but I'm looking for a new body. Building of God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, they don't know the power of God. They don't know the scriptures. And thus, they declare there is no resurrection. But the scriptures declare that there is a resurrection. And Jesus points them to the scriptures. But he declares in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Neither marrying nor giving in marriage, but are as the angels of God. Now, that, that upsets some people. Uh, the idea that there is no marriage or giving in marriage uh, in heaven. Uh, couples that have had a great relationship uh, feel, well, you know, we've had so close, I can't picture, you know, joy apart from the family and relationships and so forth. You don't know the power of God, and you don't know the Scriptures. Actually, there will be such a glorious relationship with all, with the whole family of God, that uh, the relationships that we have there are, will be so superior to anything we could ever experience on the human level. On the other hand, we had a case a while back of a woman who had been a Mormon whose marriage had been sealed in the temple and she found out what an unfaithful husband he had been and how cruel he was. And she actually had a nervous breakdown. We were called in because she was thinking of having to spend eternity with that guy and it was more than she could bear don't know the scriptures. So they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching, now that answers your question about whose wife she's going to be. But he goes on, touching the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, Going back to Moses, that which God spoke to you when he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God declared this to Moses. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Who got them. And the multitude heard this, and they were astonished at his doctrine. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this was one of their points of disagreement. And when the Pharisees had heard that he put the Sadducees to silence, I mean, he really quieted them with this. They were gathered together. And then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, it would seem that 
there was with this lawyer a true interest in the opinion of Jesus. The rabbi said that there were over 600, I think it was 609 commandments of the law. And it would be impossible to keep all 609. So that there were those that were more important than others, and so it was important to keep the more important laws, but you could sort of slide on some of the others. That there were degrees of sin, sort of like the Catholics with their mortal and venial sins. There are some sins that are worse than others. And so to them, there were some laws that were more important to keep than others. And that he is asking Jesus sincerely, uh, we find in Mark's account of this, that when Jesus saw his response to the answer that Jesus gave him, he saw how carefully he responded. Jesus said, fellow, you're close to the kingdom. You're close. You're getting there, getting the idea. So what is the great commandment in the law? What's the most important? And Jesus said unto him, the Lord our God is one God. The Shema, or Shema. Mark tells us that that he started out with. And then he said, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. In other words, your love for God must be supreme. It must exceed all other loves in your life. That's the first and their great commandment is to love God supremely. Now, the second, Jesus said, he didn't ask about the second, but Jesus said, the second is like the first. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's quite a bit, isn't it? Don't give me that. I hate myself. I just hate myself. I've heard people say that. I'm so ugly, I hate myself. But if you hated yourself, you'd be thankful that you were ugly. Say, you ugly thing, I love it that you're so ugly, because I hate you. (laughs) On these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. It, it, It sums it up. You see, if you loved God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you would have no other gods before him. You would not take his name in vain. You would want to do that which pleased him. That would be the supreme desire of your life. So all of the other prohibitions would be unnecessary. It's all summed up in just love God supremely. And if you loved your neighbor as yourself, you wouldn't steal from him. You wouldn't covet that which is his. You wouldn't lie about him. And so it's all, it's all right here. Loving God supremely and loving your neighbor as yourself. And in this, all of the law is right here. All of the prophets, 
All of the writings of the prophet summed up right here. Your problem is the fact that you don't love God supremely and you don't love your neighbor as yourself. We have other loves that come into our life. The Bible speaks of the love of money. And there is the love of possessions and the love of pleasure. Many other loves that become the supreme love of a person's life turns them away from God. They give first attention, first love to these other things. And so the prophets came and they warned the people about giving themselves over to pleasure, giving themselves over to sexual licentiousness, giving themselves over to the possessions and all. All the law and the prophets dealt with these issues. And if you loved God supremely and loved your neighbor as yourself, you don't have to worry about anything else. It's all wrapped up right there. You're all right. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. They've been questioning Jesus. They've been trying to catch him. So he turns the tables and he asks them a question. And he said, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said unto him, he's the son of David. Correct. God promised to David that there would never cease to be one of his seeds sitting upon the throne. David interpreted that correctly as God promising that the Messiah would come through David. God said, I will build your house. And thus, the son of David became one of the titles of the Messiah. He shall sit upon the throne of his father David, the angel promised Mary. Isaiah speaks about him sitting on the throne of David. He would be the righteous branch out of the stem of Jesse. And Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they, they speak of the descendant of David being king, reigning forever. So the Messiah was known as the son of David. Whose son is he? He is the son of David. Uh, isn't it Matthew that begins the gospel, uh, the genealogy of uh, Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David? Uh, Paul begins Romans somewhat that way also. Um, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, there in Matthew 1.1. So uh, it's um, commonly accepted by them. So Jesus then proposes an interesting enigma. He saith unto them, how then, if he's the son of David, does David in spirit or by the Holy Spirit, recognizing that David was a prophet and that his words were inspired by the Holy Spirit, how is it that David in the Spirit, or inspired by the Holy Spirit, called him Lord, saying, 
the Lord said unto my Lord. Quoting from Psalm 110.1, where the Lord, the first one being the name of God, the Yahweh, or as some people pronounce Jehovah, Yahweh said unto my Adonai, my Lord. David is saying, my Lord, in prophesying of the Messiah. Now, he's to be the son of David, and yet David is calling him my Lord. That is a cultural no-no. It was a patriotic, patriarchal type of society. And the father ruled. The father was always addressed as Lord or Sir, sort of the equivalent to the Kurios or the Adonai, title of respect and the acknowledgement of lordship. And how is it then that David would call him Lord? A father would never address a son as Lord. That was just a total cultural no-no. The father was the Lord of the family. And if David be the father, he's the son of David, then how is it that David called him Lord? Yahweh said unto my Adonai, my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. This, of course, was a prophecy concerning the present position of Jesus Christ who has ascended into heaven and is now waiting until the Father subdues the people and they makes his enemies his footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he then his son? No man was able to answer that one. Neither dared any man from that day forth to ask him any more questions. In other words, stay away from him. Sort of like Romaine, don't get into a verbal kind of a... Uh, Exchange with Romaine. And so they just, after that, didn't dare to ask him any more questions. As we move into chapter 23, we find Jesus now in a scathing rebuke. Let's turn now in our Bibles to uh, Gospel according to Matthew, and tonight we're in chapter 23. Now, Jesus has just had a confrontation with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders. It's been a rather heated conversation at times as Jesus denounces their practices their beliefs. In the beginning of chapter 23, he turns from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who he has silenced, and he begins to address himself to the multitude of people, no doubt that had gathered around to listen. Pharisees and Sadducees are still standing there. They're sort of 
steaming inside. But Jesus now is addressing himself to the multitude and to his disciples, but very definitely still within the hearing of the Pharisees and the scribes. But he begins to talk to the people concerning the scribes and the Pharisees. Now the scribes were a group which began at the time of Ezra, some 400 years before Christ, when the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity and they were rebuilding the temple. They brought out the scroll of the law of the Lord and they read it to the people and they explained it to the people and it uh, brought forth a revival among the people. But the scribes continue from that time and they were the men who were uh, given the task of studying the law, interpreting the law and explaining the law to the people. For the most part, the general population did not speak Hebrew, did not read Hebrew, and thus they had to depend upon the scribes to interpret the law from the Hebrew for them. And these men gave their lives to the interpreting and the understanding of the laws and also to defining when the law says thou shalt not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, what constitutes bearing a burden? If you have a wooden leg, would that constitute bearing a burden on the Sabbath day to strap on your wooden leg? If you had a false eye, would it constitute bearing a burden to put in your false eye on the Sabbath day? And, and so they tried to, you know, determine just what does constitute bearing a burden. If you wear false eyelashes, does that constitute bearing a burden on the Sabbath day? Some I've seen, I think, do. <laughs> and ultimately, they ended up with some 50 volumes plus explaining what the law meant. And that is why when Jesus earlier said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven, for you have heard that it hath been said. And so this is what they've been telling you, but this is what the law really meant. And when Jesus was through, they were astounded because he didn't teach as the scribes and the Pharisees, but he taught with authority. He said, this is what they're telling you. This is what it is. He taught with authority. Now, the scribes were one group. The Pharisees were another group. They were the ones who also tried to put into practice all of the little nuances of the law. They, they sought to live by the law fully and completely. They spent their entire lives devoting their lives to the strict adherence to the law. Now, the Jews themselves have described the Pharisees into seven different groups. They called one group the shoulder Pharisees. That is, 
They wore their religion on their shoulders, so to speak. Everything was outward, so that everything they did was for outward show and display. Then there were (laughs) what they called the uh, bruised and bloody Pharisees. Now, a Pharisee would never be caught in public talking to a woman, even if it was his wife. I mean, they were so strict. You know, they weren't to be moved by any kinds of passions towards women, so they would never talk to a woman publicly, even their wives. But there were some of them who were so strict that whenever a woman would be approaching, they would close their eyes and they were always bumping into posts or buildings. And thus their faces and noses were always scabbed and bloody. So they called them the bloody and bruised Pharisees. (laughs) And then there were the mortar and pestles, or also called the tumbling Pharisees. Now, these were men who sought to put on such an appearance of humility that they always walked around bowed down, you know, to just show humility. And they, they were so humble, they wouldn't lift their feet. They would just shuffle. And so they were always stumbling. And so they called them the tumbling Pharisees or the mortis and pestle because they were always bent over. And so the various groups, they did have what they called the godly Pharisees, those that were genuine and honest. Uh, But out of the seven groups, only one qualified in that category, which is interesting. Now, Jesus said to them, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In the Greek it is, they have seated themselves in Moses' seat. In other words, they have declared that they themselves are the interpreters and the teachers of the law. It is in a position that they have assumed. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe. In other words, they are there to teach you the Mosaic law. Learn and observe the Mosaic law. That observe and do, but do not after their works, for they say and do not. In other words, the law is right. Listen to the law, obey the law. But don't follow their practices, because they say one thing and they do another. And basically, the The fault that Jesus found with the Pharisees was that their religion was all outward. It was all for show. It was all for display. It was all to impress people. And there are those even today who do many things to impress people. They were more interested in impressing people than they were impressing God. So back to the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, as he was talking about righteousness, he said, be careful that you don't do your righteousness before men 
to be seen of men. This business of trying to show off how spiritual you are, doing things just to draw the attention of people so they say, oh, isn't he spiritual? Did you see that? My. Uh, There are many affectations of spirituality. There's a horrible, ugly thing about our flesh that... (laughs) Can you believe that we want to be known as deeply spiritual people? That's that's a crazy thing of the flesh. It wants glory from people as being a very deeply spiritual person. So we have ways of sort of demonstrating and showing just how spiritual we are. It can be with a tone of voice. It can be with affectations. It can be the folded hand and sort of a tilted head and, oh, yes. You know, I mean, and, and oh, man, that looks real. Did you see that? You know, Get close and maybe you can touch him, you know. Maybe some of them will rub off, you know. And, and there's a tendency towards that. Doing things for an outward show. And that was the thing that Jesus had against the Pharisees. He said that when you give, don't be like the Pharisees who like to make a big show over their giving. Get a little band to go before them, draw attention so they show they're dropping their money in the treasury of the church. Don't be like that, he said. When you fast, don't go around with long faces and all that you appear unto man to fast. When you pray, don't be like the Pharisees who stand on the street corners. God is looking on the heart. So many times the outward things are done to attract the attention of people. Now, it is interesting. You go today to the Western Wall and you watch them as they come to pray. Some of them are very loud, but most of them are bobbing and weaving and and bowing, you know. And, And that draws attention. And, and the more spiritual you are, the, you know, the, the more you bow, the more activated you are. I mean, and people look at that and say, wow, look at those devotions, you know. And so Jesus is condemning that which is done to tr- attract attention to you or to draw attention to yourself. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Matthew in our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on public spirituality, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Matthew 22 through 23 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. 
Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you again for your Word. Thank you, Father, that you have called us from the highways to come to the feast. What a thrill, Lord, to be invited to be a part of this glorious marriage supper. Help us, Lord, to put on the garments of praise and righteousness that you have provided for us through Jesus Christ. May we not be so presumptuous as to try to gain entrance by our own works of righteousness, by our own merits. Lord, we stand upon your merits and your work of love and grace for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and cause you to continually grow in your knowledge of his word that you might know the exceeding greatness of his love towards you and the power that he has made available to you. As Jesus rebuked the Sadducees for not knowing the power of God, I pray that you will come to know the power of God. For if that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he's going to quicken your mortal body. The Bible speaks of the power of the resurrection. And may you come to experience and know the power of God in your life and the work of the Holy Spirit as he conforms you more and more into the image of Jesus, into the person God wants you to be. May this be a week of progress in your spiritual walk. May you grow in grace and in your understanding of his love. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. It's with great honor that The Word for Today would like to present Pastor Chuck Smith's book entitled Prayer, Our Glorious Privilege. With great clarity, Pastor Chuck masterfully taught the principles of praying to God our Father and emphasized the power that belongs to each one of us when we rely on the Holy Spirit to guide and nurture our prayer lives. I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, prayer, our glorious privilege, and study it to put these biblical principles into practice. Read this book and come to the most amazing realization that prayer is the most potent weapon in your spiritual arsenal, and use it with great promise and hope. 
For when you begin a life of prayer, you begin a great adventure. To order a copy of this book in print or to download a digital copy, please visit thewordfortoday.org or call The Word for Today at 800-272-9673. 